Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Jackie A., Jared W., Paul M., and Dave V. On Smith Weekly Discussions today is a new guest. Hugh Stewart is here with us. Hugh is CEO and Director of Montage Gold Corp., an Africa-focused gold project explorer and developer advancing the Morando Gold Project in Cote d'Ivoire. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol MAU. Mr. Stewart, welcome to the show, and how are you, sir? Thanks, Andrew. I'm, I'm good, thanks. Uh, nice sunny day in uh, January in the UK, so can't complain. Excellent. Well, Hugh, let's start out here. Uh, maybe just let's just come off maybe by getting your position on the gold market here. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's probably one of the trickiest questions you're going to ask, I think. I've long struggled to, to be able to predict and understand the gold market. Um, I do think we're in a good turn and at the moment. It's one of the reasons why uh, we took the decision to, to sort of go public with Montage. It started off as a private company about 18 months ago, but go public in, in, in October last year. I think, you know, obviously with, the, with what's going on in the world, the amount of economic strife, the amount of um, money that's being pumped into the system, it, you, know, you can only think good things about the gold price at the moment. Um, does seem obviously fluctuating, and, and I, I still fail to understand a lot of the, the detail of that. Uh, but I think we're in a good place. I think it's a good time to be pushing gold projects and towards development. And uh, as I said, that's one of the sort of fundamental reasons that we uh, that we took Montage public in October. Yeah, that sounds great, and I, I think it's pretty good timing here. I think we're uh, moving higher. We might be choppy still yet to come, but I think even at current gold prices. Uh, a lot of fantastic projects work and a lot of good producers print a lot of cash at these levels. So even if it was to stay around this area, investors uh, shouldn't be too discontent with how things have set up and it will take some more time. So, you know, look, we've been patient since 2016. Why not be patient uh, for another couple of years? Not a big deal. Look, if we can get some good deals on poor market sentiment, you know, I think uh, we're certainly willing to continue to write checks for certain companies. Well, you're a new guest. And I suspect a good amount of our audience listening, some might know who you are, but maybe some don't. But why don't you just enlighten them on your background and experience in the sector? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm, um, I'm obviously an exploration geologist. Um, I've been working in Africa or stuck in Africa for pretty much my entire career, which is uh, just turned about 30 years. Um, primarily in gold, uh, Shirzone hosted Archean Proterozoic Gold Systems. Um, I was working on the in Tanzania in the 90s, worked for a long time on the Gator Gold project, uh, made the initial part of the team that made the initial discovery on that, which is which is one of the most enjoyable parts of my career, definitely. Um, mine is still in production 20 years later, which is which obviously very, very satisfying. Um, in the early 2000s, I joined a company called Redback Mining at the time. It was a small Australian junior with a with a project, um, a feasibility level project in Ghana called Chirano. Um, we sort of merged in 2004. We sort of merged with a Lundin entity um, called Champion Resources and listed in Canada. And obviously the Redback story was, you know, over the period between about 2004, um, building Chirano, putting it into production, discovering the high-grade underground uh, that really had called Aquaba, which really changed Redback in sort of 2005-06. The purchase of the Tassiest uh, project in 2007, and obviously um, the exploration uh, success that we had at Tassiest was uh, was a huge amount of fun. Um, finding a significant gold deposit always is, and sort of taking it all the way through to obviously the sale in 2010 to Kinross, um, having discovered I think probably what at the time was probably close to 20 million ounces, or turning a couple of million ounces into closer to 20 at Tassiest. Since that that time, we basically stuck together, the Redback guys, uh, Rick Clark, Kevin Ross, and a couple of the others. We started another company called Orc, which is now called Orca Gold, which is running in, uh, working in Sudan. Uh, we discovered a four million ounce deposit there uh, up in the north, close to the Egyptian border, which we're um, pretty much ready to build. The, the politics of Sudan is obviously 
key to that one, but that's kind of coming right now, which is very, very good. Um, and really the projects that were in montage go back actually to, to sort of 2008, 2009. Um, and I've been kind of involved with these projects off and on for a long time, liked Cote d'Ivoire. And really the rationale for montage was really to sort of pull all those projects um, in Cote d'Ivoire together into a company so we could actually progress it. So, and then so over the last couple of years, I've really been focused on, on montage. Good experience there and definitely a lot of good uh, success as well. Certainly with Redback, that's uh, quite a highlight in the sector and continues to be a, a highlight even today. Interesting how you guys have set it up again, where you really have this time kind of two companies focused in two different jurisdictions and of course, uh, a similar type of potential performance profile in terms of, you know, potential mines, uh, et cetera. So it's it's an interesting setup, and I appreciate you sharing some of that background with us, Hugh. We'll talk about Cote d'Ivoire for a moment, or CDI, as a jurisdiction, and really how it compares to the neighbors right next to it, like Burkina Faso, Ghana, uh, even uh, lesser spoke of Liberia. Yeah, Cote d'Ivoire is. I mean, West Africa. From a from a geological point of view, from a prospectivity point of view, is clearly a you know, a massively interesting place. Um, as in much of Africa, you know, the politics does at times. You know, it goes in cycles, goes in periods, but it does does affect things. For me, the, the attraction of Cote d'Ivoire specifically probably dates back to some political instability in probably the 90s and 2000s, which really led to a, a lack of exploration during that period. Um, so a lot of exploration at the time was going on in, in Ghana, in Burkina Faso, Mali, and the countries around it. But Cote d'Ivoire really got left behind at that time. Um, and that's one of the fundamentals for me. It's the reason why Orca went to Sudan is that if you can find, if you can go to somewhere where nobody's explored before, or much less exploration has, has happened before, it's simply a lot easier to find things. Um, so Cote d'Ivoire has always been on the radar. I, I think it's the same was the same in 2008 when we first started looking at it and, and at least a little bit lesser to a little lesser extent now. Um, but I think the key for, for, for Cote d'Ivoire is that it hasn't seen some of those, um, the issues that have dogged Burkina Faso, Mali, uh, Niger over the last, last couple of years. Um, we haven't really seen the same impact uh, moving south into Cote d'Ivoire. Um, we've just gone through an election in Cote d'Ivoire in October, which went pretty smoothly. Uh, there was a little bit of trouble, um, but you know the election itself went went very smoothly. Um, so I think Cote d'Ivoire, in terms of looking at West Africa as a whole, it's in a really good position at the moment. You know, the country's growing. There's a lot of investment coming on. There's mines getting built. I think Perseus have just completed construction of the Ore project, and there's a lot more exploration we're starting to see. And I think Art Deposit Kone is one of the next round of discoveries that have sort of come over the last few years which reflects that political stability since about 2011, 2012. So I think Cote d'Ivoire in comparison to a lot of those other parts of Africa uh, is a good place to be right now. I think there's there's going to be a lot going on from a, from a geological point of view, but I think that political stability that seems to be getting into at the moment and sort of maintaining is one of the key things that's going to drive that growth. Yeah, it certainly is better placed over some of the neighboring jurisdictions. You know, I want to talk just a little bit more about jurisdictions for a moment, but do you have a specific view on Liberia? I've always, I'd liked the geology. We, I haven't looked at it in, we looked at it, I don't know, about 10, eight, nine years ago. Geologically speaking, it looks to be, you know, it's highly prospective. There's a couple of mines, but to be honest, from a political point of view, I don't really know enough about it. We looked at a couple of projects there. Um, and I think we decided at the time we would we would sort of hold where we were, I think, focused on, on Cote d'Ivoire because really from a geological point of view, the, the metamorphic grade, which is the, the, the sort of the amount of heat and pressure that's been applied to the rocks is is higher in that part of West Africa. Um, and for me, that that's sort of one of the things that sort of downgrades prospectivity slightly. Yeah, you know, it, it appears to come across as definitely much better than like a Burkina Faso. You know, so it's it's certainly ranked a little bit higher from what I can tell in, in my research of looking at the country. And then also, I want to talk to you a little bit more about these, you know, really what I believe to be kind of tier one jurisdictions in Africa. Do you have a view of Namibia and Botswana? I would love to go and work in those parts of the world. They do sound good. Obviously, there's a couple of mines um, that have been developed in both. 
Um, I think from a gold point of view, I think one of the things that is hold, holds them back a little bit is from a gold point of view, I think Botswana doesn't necessarily have exactly the right rocks, probably more from a sort of copper, obviously diamonds is, is, is big there. I think from a Namibia point of view, it's, it's more a question of knowledge. People are, uh, there's less people that know uh, about the geology there. So companies like Osino, who are doing extremely well, obviously people that have worked in that area for a long time, um, sort of have the advantage. So I think from a, I think one of the things that holds people back, uh, obviously politically, it's it's probably the most stable, those, both of those most stable countries in Africa. Um, but I think geologically, perhaps they're just a little bit less known from a gold point of view, which which probably explains why there's fewer fewer companies working there. It's in some ways it's like Sudan. Sudan is a very much a uh, a blank page to a lot of people geologically because there's there's very little experience of working in that part of the world. Yeah, good points on that, and certainly we'll see what B2 continues to do there, and and we'll see what Haya turns up with Osino, and of course, you know, we like Namibia primarily from a uranium standpoint. It's just been a solid uranium jurisdiction, and of course, we know it's been stable and built out pretty well, and now we have offshore and onshore oil potential there, and so there's a lot of odds and ends going on with Namibia specifically. Well, let's get into a montage here, Q. Maybe let's Let's go ahead and start out here. Maybe you can just cover the uh, capital structure, the cash on hand, and if you see any need, which I don't see that there is much of a need to raise any capital in 2021. So Montage, um, it was actually formed as a private company. Um, so it was part of these projects were part of Walker Gold since their inception, probably 2017. Um, we'd long thought about spinning them out, trying to find and trying to work out the best way of doing it. We didn't. We thought long and hard about it because we didn't want to just create another cash-strapped junior that was going to struggle for for finance, um, not just at the beginning, but obviously going forward. Um, so we spun it out in 2019 into into Montage, a private company. At the time, we merged it with another private entity called Avant Minerals, which had some projects in Burkina Faso uh, and uh, and Cote d'Ivoire, but was backed primarily by the Sandstone Gold Royalties Group and sort of people connected with Sandstorm. So by putting the two companies together, we felt we were giving ourselves another set of backers. Obviously we have the Lundin things on our side, we have Ross Beatty involved in, in, in montage, uh, but bringing Sandstorm in and that side of things gave us another sort of a, a sort of third aspect to that, being able to finance and move things forward. Um, we did a, a bunch of work, we raised a bit of money in 2019, we raised about 8 million so we haven't thought about four with it. Um, so we came out of the gate with probably 12 million in August 2019. We were focused in Cote d'Ivoire. We've, we've since uh, divested ourselves with the assets in Burkina Faso. We were focused on this, this project in the Mwanda project in Cote d'Ivoire, um, which had returned in the past some very broad intercepts of, of lower grade mineralization, uh, but had never really been tested. Um, there was a resource of about 1.5 million ounces um, that Orca defined. Um, so we did some work over the course of 2019, uh, sorry, late 2019 into 2020, trying to sort of prove that the scale of that ore body was, was going to be able to increase. Uh, we did that, and obviously that conversation we had a gold price a minute ago also impacted on the decision to take the company public in October last year and raised a significant amount of money. So we went public and we raised uh, $35 million uh, as part of that process. So we have about 90, no, we have about 105 uh, basic shares outstanding with the options, about 114 million shares. We've still got a significant amount of cash, probably about the end of, I think the end of December's balance was about 33 million. And really that gives us enough enough money to take montage through and take the project that we've got all the way through to the completion of a feasibility study well within that budget i think the by the end of this year so i i would ex- i would be very surprised if we came back to the market this year I think the only reason to do it would have been would be a very positive reason but at the moment that money should last us well into uh, well into 2022 i think the budget the ipo that we put out at the ipo was about 22 million canadian uh, to take this project with all the drilling, all the studies, the PEA due at the end of March, and then straight into a feasibility study by the end of next year. So good capital structure, good backing. Obviously, Lucas and the Lundin group are, are there. Sandstorm were there. We had a very 
um, sort of who's who uh, list on our president's list as part of that financing, which is about, uh, I think, about a third of the, the total. So I think from that point of view, a montage is in a, an enviable position. Hugh, and can you go back to the uh, the private montage for us for just a moment and talk about those initial financing rounds um, back when you guys fired this up? Who was involved in the early seed financing and what were the price points? The the initial financing we did as montage would have been August uh, 2019. The price was 45 cents. Um, and that really was largely friends and family. It was, it was, it was ourselves, people from within Sandstorm, uh, people connected with the Sandstorm group, um, and obviously people connected with, with our side of things, with, with Lucas taking a, uh, a position. I think he owns now about 7% of the company. I think there have been prior rounds, obviously, within Avant. Avant had raised money prior to that. But I think most of those would have been on an equivalent basis, at least at about 45 cents or, or higher uh, in sort of comparison. Maybe just talk a little bit more about the key folks within the leadership at Montage and why you're doing that. Uh, why don't you give us a candid view of Rick Clark? <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, so the, 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 the sort of key people at Montage, it's, it's a small group. Um, I'm obviously running the company. I kind of do most of the geology as well. Um, we share a CFO uh, with with Orca, a guy called Glenn Condo, who's been, who was uh, the ex- uh, until he joined us, anyway, CFO of uh, Lucara Diamonds. Been through most of the construction and financing with them. Um, we have an ex executive VP called Dev, uh, Adam Spencer, who was the guy who was until recently working for Sandstorm. He was a VP of corporate development for Sandstorm, and he was running the, the company that we merged with. And so but basically between the three of us, we're running the company. As I said, I do most of the geology, uh, so we don't have a... VP exploration, I'm very much hands-on in terms of the technical side of the company as well as everything else. Um, in terms of the board, obviously Rick is there. I'll get to him in a minute. We have Kevin Ross, who is the COO of Redback. He's on our board and kind of filling in that that function of COO at the moment, but from, from a non-exec director's point of view. Um, and then we have David Field, who's an ex-fund manager on the board uh, from Carmignac. Um, we have Peter Mitchell, who is the ex-CFO uh, uh, of Coal Mining, and Dave DeWitt, who's, uh, again, one of the sort of people, the founders of Sandstorm and, and a very successful mining entrepreneur on the, in, in Vancouver. Um, so a pretty strong board, I think. Um, yeah, so Rick, Rick and I have worked together for a long time. Uh, we go back to the early days in, in, in Redback 2004. And I think one of the reasons why, why Redback worked and was a lot of fun, and I think why Orcas worked, um, is that everybody just gets on with their own job. Um, so we, everybody knows what they're good at and we, we let each other get on with it. So I think working with Rick, not just enjoyable, but is also, um, it also works very well from a, from a corporate point of view. Appreciate you, you sharing that. And um, what do you think the potential is with the uh, that satellite deposit, Petit Yao, if I pronounce that correctly, forgive me if I didn't. Uh, do you see any potential there to really call it a amenable satellite deposit to the Morando Gold Project and, of course, the primary cone deposit? Um, yeah, I think that's definitely there. I mean, one of the things uh, in this part of Africa, I think, is if you're seeing soil anomalies, I like to look at the 100 parts per billion sort of soil contours. Um, Kone itself is, is very much defined by that contour. Pitiao is, is a solid 100 ppb soil contour. Um, we did some work on it. We did some shallow sort of air core style RC drilling, uh, I think back at the beginning of last year. And we got some reasonable hits, but we didn't really get enough to be able to understand or to justify why that anomaly is there. So I think it does have, have the potential to, to, to provide some satellite feed. I think one of the keys, you know, the keys here for, for us is that obviously Kone is, you know, is a large scale deposit. You know, we've just released the, the latest resource, which is just a tad over 3 million ounces at a grade of about 0.8. But the target is very much to show that the Kona is on its own is, is a pretty solid deposit. It has a whole bunch of features that, that make it a good development project. And I think you know, one of the things as we've studied these things is you start to you look at the impact of smaller, higher-grade satellite deposits on a large throughput, low-grade, low-cost operation. 
and the economics of those satellites far outweigh their size. Um, so for us, you know, as I said, the strategy is probably twofold here, is to, is to demonstrate that Kone is, is pretty fun and good, uh, pretty solid as it is. Um, but obviously, you know, one of the ways we want to try and keep developing it is, is by discovering higher grade satellites, because you, know, you no longer need to find a million ounces. You, if you can find 50, 100, 200,000 ounces, they sound insignificant, they sound small, but if you start putting them into a big low-cost uh, process plant with um, a low process cost, the amount of money you can make from those is, is quite disproportionate to their size. So it is very much part of our strategy as we move forward. Obviously, Putiao will get some attention in the next couple of months with some more drilling. You'll see on the maps we have some other exploration permit applications to the north, which we're, which we're trying to get issued. Um, well within trucking distance, you know, we would see a, the potential to truck in this part of the world, you know, going out probably 60, 70 kilometers from Kone. So as we get into those other areas, um, as I said, the exploration focus, the way you explore is different for a smaller deposit than it is for a large standalone deposit. And obviously that's going to be our focus because that's the way that we can really move on uh, with Kone once we get through the current process. Um, demonstrate that it's solid. We can actually make it a huge amount, a lot better, by by adding smaller, you know, kind of hub and spoke sort of model, but adding smaller, higher grade ounces to to the production profile. Yeah, and I want to come back to uh, Kone in a minute, but the north northeastern concessions that Montage holds. Uh, do you also see that there's good potential there? As you said, you have a pretty good distance threshold. I was thinking it would be less than what you just said, but uh, the distance actually is quite amenable. Do you see that there's definitely potential here for you know two to three satellite feeds? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think you know whether that's in our ground, hopefully. The ground there, you know, it is one of the reasons why we're going back to sort of 2008, 2009, why we first picked this area back in the Redback days. Um, was that there was just a lot of anomalism. It, it, they're two very strong structures. One comes down out of Mali from Siama, the other one comes down from Burkina Faso through uh, through the Wanyon mine, down through Tongon. Um, two major sort of crustal scale structures, the right rocks, obviously. Um, but there's just a lot of anomalism. There's a lot of gold associated with those structures. So when you look at sort of the presentations for companies over the years on either side of us and to the north, there's just a lot of anomalism. There's a lot of you know, gold around. So yeah, I do. Th I do think there is. I think we're in a good location. I think those strength, those trends, are strong, and I think there is there is a solid potential for for adding satellites to it. Hugh, if Montage builds out Morando, and really I suspect that's a win question, but how much potential do you see for nearby explorers and developers to enter into some type of relationship with Montage regarding use of the facilities? I think that's a concept that's starting to get a lot more traction in, in West Africa, especially. If you have if we have a large scale deposit, you know, we've got a three million ounce deposit sitting in at Kone, you know, it's gonna have a significant production profile, we think. It's pointless building mines, you know, you to, to build, you know, if you if you've got satellites, as we said, they don't have to be huge. Um, it becomes a sort of natural hub or a natural center of gravity within that district. So um, whether it's other companies developing things and bringing them in, or whether we there's some arrangement, there's some sort of consolidation of the ground within that district, which is something we 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 are and will continue to look at. Um, is I think is just logical. If unless you find something very very significant in that ground, I think it's the logical thing is is to simply truck it into a larger scale process plant, and um, I think that that's a that's a good way of looking at it. And Hugh, what kind of runway do you think Coney? has left in the deposit there for expansion? I'd like to think it's, um, I'm an exploration geologist, so I'm always optimistic. No, I'd like to think it's, it's got room to grow. We, we haven't really drilled off the resource. Um, it's the drilling we've done, obviously, when you get into this this whole process, you're very much driven by the, when you tell the market in the moment, you know, we're trying to make sure that we hit our, our different milestones on time when we've when we tend when we've said we're gonna do them. But at the same time, um, I'm also trying to free up some some rigs or a couple of rigs to be able to go and look a little bit outside the the Kone resource itself. Um, the structure does continue to the south. We've we've mapped it out with some geophysics 
Um, the anomalism isn't isn't there on surface in the soils, but um, you know, this is in many ways, whilst the story sounds old, um, there's only 40,000 meters or just over 40,000 meters of, of drilling in this resource. For a three million ounce resource, that obviously speaks mainly to the geometry and nature of the mineralization, but it's in many ways, it is an early stage exploration story. You know, that probably 99% of that 40,000 meters goes into the resource itself, um, which we're obviously taking to the PEA. So, um, and as we, as you know, the best place to find a gold deposit is, is next to a gold deposit. So I think the key for the moment, for the next few months is, is trying to free up some rigs or free up some, some capacity to be able to just do some more scout drilling, drill, you know, drill a few fences of holes to the south. I mean, the, the, the southernmost hole is literally on the edge of the resource. So there's a lot of scope, I think, for, for drilling around Coney and, and we still don't understand it completely. So there's a lot of scope to, to sort of develop some more ideas about what controls it. We're going to fly some airborne geophysics over the area, I think, in the next couple of months. I'd like to think we can find some more. You know, these stories, you know, it generally takes time. You need a few breaks. Um, but if you look at the history of discovery and most, most deposits, um, you know, it doesn't all come at once. Um, so it's a question of uh, just working away at it and seeing what else you can, you can uh, tag onto the edges. And I think there is uh, quite a bit of potential left here. So you've got this resource update. You've got the PEA coming out very soon. And you plan to further expand the resource by year end. And then, of course, a feasibility study by Christmas. Hugh, is there any Lasan curve here at Montage because of the speed? And can folks really expect a construction decision in 2022 with potential production in 2023? It does sound kind of scary when you say it like that, doesn't it? I think one of the key things here is is the way we work. It's the same with Orca. It's the same in in the past. Is that is that we we're not really in the business just to sort of just just to put resources out there. Um, the reason why we've been able to set ourselves a relatively aggressive time scale is that over the last probably pretty much you know, from the from the beginning here, um, we've thought about what it takes to be able to make a mine. Um, we did the first metallurgical sampling on this project in 2018 before we drilled the resource, um, because obviously it's a relatively low-grade deposit. There was no point drilling the resource unless the metallurgy worked. Um, and a lot of the work we've done, looking at the engineering, we work very closely with a couple of mining engineers, guys like Kevin on the board, Kevin Ross, really looking to understand the deposit you know, prior to the resource or during the resource process. So we, we probably completed an internal study on this in, in 2019, what we did using Lycopodium, using Night Peace Old SRK for various aspects of it. So we kind of knew where we wanted to get to. Um, so the reason why we've, we've been able to take that timeline is that we, we've understood for a while what we need to do and where we need to be to be able to, to get it to that feasibility study by the end of the year. And, and, and that's you know, part of that was, we call this a PEA, most of the work, whether it's the geotechnical work, the hydro work, the metallurgy is really being done to a higher level, probably to a, a, a PFS level, um, which again allows us to move the project more quickly through to feasibility. In terms of construction decision, I think one of the, again, it's one of those positive factors that you see in West Africa and certainly in Cote d'Ivoire over the last few months um, is that permitting is relatively straightforward. Uh, you've seen recently both Roxgold and another company, Tieta Minerals, which is an Aussie junior, uh, both receive environmental approvals, both receive their mining permits, actually prior to completion of their feasibility studies, um, which allows that processing, allows you to move forward to the construction decision much more, much more quickly. So I'd like to think, you know, by, by early 2022, we'll be in the same position. We'll have the feasibility study complete. We'll have our environmental permit. <clears throat> we'll have our the mining permit application made and, and hopefully granted it along that sort of timeline as well. It will probably be I don't know 2023 if we were to you know to to make a construction decision in the first half of 2022. 2023 is probably aggressive because it will be a large scale process plant, so it will probably be a two year build. But yeah, that's that's certainly the, the track we've we've set ourselves, and you know we've we've stopped using this. We had a quite slightly cheesy strap line of discover to build uh, until recently, um, but I think that does actually describe how we work and, and 
you know, that is certainly our intention is to progress this uh, so that we can build it. And everything we do is 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 based on that premise, really. Yeah, and it's great and it's pretty fast here. There's not a lot of downtime, um, especially if uh, you guys push this forward as you've outlined. But talk a little bit more about the management expectations for a mine hue. Talk about maybe what you guys envision. And I know you can't share a lot of info because you guys are still working on the PEA, but maybe give us a ballpark figure of what you see in terms of a production profile that might be attractive to a mid-tier or a major, and then also what your guys' minimum mine life is that you guys are setting forth here. Maybe just speak to some of those ballpark expectations. Basically, what we're looking at, you know, when we, when we, we, did, we just came out with a 3.1 million ounce resource uh, based on a 0.4 cutoff. That resource is really, really driven. Our, our drilling, and this goes back to, again, how we work, is, is really driven by understanding what, a, what an open pit can do. And where it can go. Um, so along the process of, of over the last couple of years, we, we we run hypothetical resources below our current resource. The, the previous was resource we update it periodically. We run pit optimization. So when we look at the drill sections that that we're we're using at the moment, we're basically thinking that we've drilled round about where an open pit could go. So I would expect there's going to be a relatively high conversion of that resource. Uh, into into a, an in-pit resource as part of the PEA um, at a reasonable gold price. We'll probably use something in the region of 1,200 for the optimizations uh, for the for the PEA. Um, in terms of production profile, because you know it is a it is a low-grade deposit at the moment. You know the grade is is going to be 0 0.7, 0 0.8. You need a large-scale process plant, um, so the capex will be will be reasonable. We're probably looking in the range of sort of six, seven, possibly a little bit higher in terms of million tons per annum. But at the same time, that drives some pretty significant economics, uh, production profile, probably sort of aiming for in excess of 200,000 ounces a year for a mine life of um, probably 13 to 15 years is something we're looking at at the moment. Possibly, you know, I think one of the things that we're trying to work on in terms of the market is, is now, if you look at Tony, you know, from a from a distance, you see the grade, and everybody says that the grade is king. But at the same time, grade is actually not the only king. Um, there are a whole bunch of other things that you need to do, or you need to have going in your in your direction to be able to turn a discovery into a mine. And Kone actually has a whole bunch of those, which is why we are um, so excited, and we're why we're pushing it so hard. So. First thing is the geometry of the ore body. It's, it's up to 250 in excess, or sometimes even wider in terms of true width. Um, it's really, in, in terms of its shape, it's kind of like a porphyry, a gold porphyry. It, it's hosted by a diorite, um, but it's, it's sort of 600 meters, 800 meters long in the main part of the pit. The mineralization is up to 300 meters in true width, probably averages more than 200 meters, which means you can mine it on, on a large scale. Uh, which means your unit cost is low. It dips to the west at about 45, 50 degrees, which means, again, your strip ratio is low, which um, obviously reduces hugely the amount of waste that you have to, to mine, which is often one of the most significant cost aspects of, of a mining project. And we're also relatively close to the, to the national power grid. It's about 20 kilometers away, which means if we can access grid power, we can obviously we don't have to generate our own power using heavy fuel oil or diesel, uh, which means our process cost is low, which means in turn that our cutoff grade for mining is low, which means in turn that our strip ratio is lower again. So it has a whole series of positive factors that sort of negate that grade. It's also the metallurgy is clean, you know, the recovery is in fresh rock, and this is dominantly a fresh rock ore body, so it will be a CIO project. The, you know, the metallurgies, you know, the recoveries are in excess of uh, 90%, probably 91, 92% in fresh rock in the CIL, so that's good. The, the bond index that's used to sort of classify how much power you require to grind the rock um, is probably one of the lowest you'll find. It's classified as, as soft officially. And so, again, that, that drives a lot of cost benefits. So I think in terms of what we're expecting or what we're targeting here, is you know, is a is a mine that's going to produce a significant amount of gold, and is going to probably go for at least 12, 13, 15 years, possibly with a bit of high grading. And there's there is a higher grade core to the deposit, 
one of the things we'll look at. I mean, it's not sort of two, three grams, but it's there's probably a couple of million ounces in excess of a gram within Karnak. And what we'll look at as part of the PEA is to be able to bring forward some of that grade if we can, stockpile a little bit of the um, lower grade until later in the mine life, which obviously improves the economics. So I think that's, the, as I said, that's the key for us is, is getting people to think beyond the grade and understand that um, with those other factors that all contribute, um, this is actually a significant project that's actually going to produce a fair amount of gold and, and be and have some pretty uh, interesting economic metrics at the same time. Yeah, I think you hit it all pretty much right on there, Hugh. Um, you know, the, the grade is king. You know, terminology is a bit silly. You know, I have to ask yourself, why is low-grade oxide heap leach so effective? And when you take a look at metallurgy, like you said, location management and cost profile, I think are the kingmakers. And really, the grade is, is really queen. You know, again, sometimes grade works out really well. Other times, grade isn't so important as you just outlined. And I think the profile of a 14-year mine life and a 200,000 ounce plus per annum profile is pretty fantastic. And I think that hits the sweet spot for, you know, a mid-tier potentially majors if there's some growth potential there as well that makes it look attractive. That's kind of my thoughts on what you said there. And I think you've got it exactly right. If you guys can high grade it out of the gate, the lower grade material gets stockpiled. That's fantastic because in a higher price environment, which I suspect we will get over that time, I mean, no guarantees, but 2023, 2024, that low grade material could look amazingly economic. I, you know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a there's a there's a bunch of things that are important, you know, and and that's really I think that's why why this works. And you know, we if we didn't think it would work, we wouldn't have probably we wouldn't have taken the decision to move the uh, move move forward and list the company and, and raise the money to 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 get aggressive to to sort of put ourselves under that timeline that we've given. So financing the project, and I know you can't mention a lot here either. I'm getting ahead of myself here, I guess, with where you guys are at, but maybe just give us a ballpark or a preview on really what you see, a rough CapEx. Maybe there's a peer comparable. You can maybe just speak of a peer comparable and then how that financing package would be structured as far as, you know, debt equity. You know, obviously with Sandstorm being involved, uh, maybe they want a royalty or a stream, gold notes. Uh, what's your thoughts on these things? Part of me doesn't want to think about it yet, um, but um, no, I mean, I think in terms of CapEx, we're probably looking at a number. I mean, in terms of comparables, trying to think of things of this kind of size, uh, you're probably the closest comparable is probably Cardinal's deposit in, in Ghana, Namdini, which is which is a bit bigger. It's about, I think they're in their reserve. It's they've completed feasibility. The reserve's about five million ounces, so it's a little bit bigger, but it's a it's a similar large scale. Um, process plan, I think they're looking at about nine and a half million ton a year processing. And I think their CapEx is just shy of 400 million. Um, so obviously that's a, that's a big number. And I think obviously one of the one of the challenges for smaller companies, uh, for juniors, which are sort of trying to build build projects is, is obviously the CapEx. And it's obviously, then it comes down to the debt, you know, the debt and equity components to it. So um, again, I think you know one of the reasons why I think one of the advantages advantages we have is obviously those connections with people like Sandstorm, and obviously some of the backers that we have behind us. Um, but I think given that production profile, it is a project that can can handle it, can handle the debt. And so, whilst I think once we once we probably get into the second half of the year, uh, we'll probably once we've completed the PA and get get solidly into the feasibility study, I think those thoughts are going to have to be uh, crystallised a bit more. But um, I think it is a project that can hold it. So uh, I think from that point of view, we should be okay. Let's talk just briefly about MPV discount rates uh, for a moment uh, for global jurisdictions. And, you know, this has been an increasing, a little bit of an increasing issue with, with some of uh, our audience feedback and, of course, some of our review of MPV discount rates globally, looking at various jurisdictions. You know, that really the five and even the seven and a half percent rates, uh, you know, are, are questionable, especially depending on the jurisdiction. As you and I spoke earlier, you know, even a five percent rate in, in a place like Canada or the U.S., I, I think is a bit of a joke. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's other components like the gold price that's used and the assumptions um, when you guys do your studies, which I know you're very conservative on that front, which also adds a lot back. But what's your thoughts there on discount rates? 
you know, for a place like CDI or, you know, other jurisdictions? And how will Montage approach this when working on the bankable studies? As we were discussing earlier, as you said, it, 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 it's a difficult one. Um, you know, you want, to, you want to take a conservative view of things because I think that's the best way you understand your deposit and understand whether it can actually be turned into a mine or not. But at the same time, you know, you also look at how the market, you know, other companies, you look at your peers, you look at what everybody else is doing in the space. And you have to take cognizance of that. You have to understand, you know, you can't be, you know, you can't sort of hamstring your own project or your own sort of um, way of working by by sort of being ultra conservative all the time. Um, so in terms of discount rate, you know, when you look at what projects are being put forward around, say, West Africa at the moment, you know, whilst obviously I probably have to, I'm going to have to disagree with you, most people are using a 5 or a 7%. Perhaps it's a little bit different for, for some of the producers because they can take a, a little bit of a harder view on that. But um, now when you look at most, most companies, most projects, they are using um, lower discount rates. So, you know, for the moment, we're kind of looking at a 5. But as we said, it's really to sort of fit in with other people. I think we, where we do try to add conservatism is is in the the metrics that are used as part of the, the sort of the process. So for a pit optimization that's feeding, you know, we've used fifteen hundred dollars for the for the resource, which is kind of really here or there. What the key number is really what you're going to use for the as the actual pit optimization that feeds into the mining part of the PEA, and we'll be using a twelve hundred gold price for that, um, which I think speaks to a lot of that conservatism. In terms of gold price for, for running the economics, again, you know, you've got to look at what your peers are doing. Otherwise, you just get unreasonably punished, I would say, in the market. So, but again, our view is that you want to take a conservative view on that. Uh, we'll probably look in the range between fourteen and fifteen hundred dollar gold for the economics. We haven't made a decision on that as yet, um, which I think is reasonable or reasonably conservative. But again, it, it's it's striking that balance between the two, doing what you think is conservative and is going to give you the best view of your project but at the same time not sort of uh, penalizing yourself um, by ignoring what other peers and the rest of the market is doing. Very good points Hugh and we also see the market discount as they so please and we've seen this with companies that I believe are severely undervalued but the market doesn't care and as you know one of the most frequent things that people say in this industry is well, we're discounted to our peers. Yeah, well, certainly there is. And so some of these discussions, I guess, don't necessarily matter so much when it comes to a bull market where it becomes euphoric, as you know very well. And then all of a sudden these rates start declining or what have you. And then you start looking at the multiples. And then, of course, the, the re-rate that will happen during development. And then, of course, cash flow production. The market definitely has been rewarding cash flow production that's that's very sound and sustainable. So you're absolutely right. And I do agree that having the uh, the lower gold prices puts forward a very robust setup. And of course, uh, you know, we know that these projects already have good economic profiles. So appreciate your views on that, trying to compete with peers and so forth of what people are doing in this market. And, and quite frankly, you know, if you're earning 0% or negative interest rates in your bank account, this doesn't look so bad. So talk about the, uh, the other projects in CDI that's further away, uh, the uh, Coral Caja project and also the uh, Bobasso project, if I pronounce those correctly, how do those fit into the montage pipeline strategy? Well, yeah, uh, Coral Caja is up on the north, up and close to the Burkina border. Uh, it's two permits, uh, about 700 square kilometers in an application uh, that's still to be granted. Um, they both lie, those permits lie adjacent to, to the mining lease of Tonga, of the Tongan mine, which is a barrack mine, an ex-Rangold project that's been in production for probably at least 15 years. And obviously, from our point of view, it's, it's a close energy play, but also some of those projects, though, you know, they do share that proximity to a mine. Um, so anything we find, you know, especially a mine like Tongan, which is producing the, you know, is getting towards the end of its life. I think it probably has two, three, four years left. So no, they they are they are important projects to us. I think I think again it's a it's a it's a question of balance for us at the moment. The the prime driver of value for montage and for shareholders is, is obviously Kone and the Morando project, and that is by far our focus. The Kurokawa project is an earlier stage. It doesn't have any drilling on it. 
It has a nice soil anomaly that we, we've defined over the last couple of years. Again, it goes. This is a this is a permit that was actually first applied for in 2008 uh, in the redback time. So it's a fairly old permit, but never really been explored consistently. Um, so whereas the focus is on currently, we will be doing some work on both of those permits. We've had some guys, some contractors, rather than sort of detract or distract us from the work at uh, Miranda. We've been using a, a contract, a local contracting company that have been doing an excellent job running some early stage soils. They're going to be doing some trenching and some mapping and hopefully develop some drill targets on the on the Kuraka North project in the next uh, in the next few months. Um, but again. It's balancing that against uh, against sort of the need to, to stay focused. Um, the Barbosso project uh, out to the east uh, sits on the southern extension of what they call the Hyundai Greenstone Belt, which is a very uh, prolific Greenstone Belt uh, in Burkina Faso. Uh, hosts the Endeavour Minder Hyundai Yaramoko of Roxgold and a whole bunch of other targets. Um, it has received a fair amount of drilling. It was a project that we acquired through Avant Minerals. They did some drilling back in 2000, uh, I think 17 and 18 uh, on that project. And yeah, it's there's 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 definitely gold worth some good intercepts that came through from that 2017 drilling up to sort of 37 meters at two and a half grams, close to 60 meters at just over one and a half grams. It's slightly more complicated in terms of the geology, you know, probably more structurally complicated, but there's a fantastic soil anomaly. And we've just really, over the last year, been getting our heads around the geology of it. Uh, we have done a bit of work on that, but uh, we're currently looking, considering just sending a, sending a rig out there uh, and drilling some holes in the, next, in the next few months, just to try and answer a few questions that we've got about it and see if we can link things together a little bit better um, based on that drilling from 2017, which was in a, they kind of they changed the the angle of the drilling round in 2017, and that seems to seems to hold together a little bit better. But um, so again, we'll we'll probably do that over the next few months. But again, we'll probably use contractors to do it, so we don't distract uh, from the level of uh, of activity and the the quality of work that's going on at uh, at Morando at the moment. Yeah, that's great, and the focus on Morando absolutely first and foremost. I guess the broader strategy, and you guys know this much better than I do. But using Redback as a potential example, as far as strategy goes, when this gets done and Morando is is in the bed and completed, what is the thought process once you guys are cash flowing? What are you guys going to do next? Uh, let's let's just assume that's what happens. You guys build this and uh, you guys get into cash flow. What do you think on pipeline? What do you think you guys will look at after that? Well, that's uh, crystal ball stuff. <laughs> I think that the key thing is is through the whole process. I mean, I'd like to. There's a couple of things I'd like to do around in in terms of Cote d'Ivoire. I think there's a bit of if we can affect some of the consolidation around Morondo would be excellent. And if we were able to do that, I, I would. You know, if we could perhaps JV a couple of these other projects, I would possibly look at that. Um, but I think yeah, we've always you've always just got to keep whether it's now or, or then. You, you've always got to look for look for other opportunities, what other opportunities come across your desk um, and be open to that. Um, you know, you've got to, you've got to look at a lot of stuff, but if, if something does come across even before, you know, before Morando went into production, I think one of the, one of the good things about having a, a set of people behind us uh, like we do is that if something does come up, you can take advantage of it. You can actually move uh, and again, I think one of the, the joys of working for Redback was that we were able, we were able to move pretty quickly. It was a very nimble company. I think that's something um, is something uh, that we'd like to, you know, sort of keep going. So yeah, I think we're always always looking at projects, always evaluating new new projects. So, but you got to, you know, you got to kiss a lot of cows in that process. So um, you really got to just be looking and be aware. But when the right project comes. I think uh, be open to be able to act on it. Yeah, certainly agree. There's a lot of moving parts there, and you guys, you know, certainly know that strategy. And I just look at it as really montage assets. You know, at the time we're, we're in Orca Gold, and of course there was uh, that type of runway. And obviously because of the issues in Sudan, there was a, a reason to split that out, which I think is very valid. And now you really have these two companies that are separate now, and where the one company would have, you know, maybe potentially two projects two development projects, et cetera. 
the, the strategies that you guys have are highly rewarding strategies, but also require just a lot of work you and, and you know that and of course the big key here for you guys obviously is getting the cash flow and then of course now you have a huge amount of runway with some cash power to move forward and look at some other stuff so lots on your plate fully agreed and glad you guys are focusing in on morando and, and getting this going well hugh for potential investors who are listening on the sidelines market cap today i think is standing somewhere around the, the 110 115 million uh, Canadian here, what would you say to potential investors at this stage and at current price levels? I think we're pretty undervalued. I think if you look at look us in ter- look at us in terms of our peers, I think with the, with the program that we've got laid out for us, the key thing for us is to hit our targets to to do what we said we were going to do. But I think if you look at look at those look at us in terms of our peers, I think we are particularly undervalued. I think we have a significant asset. Um, I think people are going to, I think the market's going to be a little bit surprised by the PEA. I hope it's a bit surprised by the PEA in a good way. Um, so I think, yeah, I think as people sort of, I think because it's it's a relatively new story, it's it's getting it getting it out there. But I think as we go through the course of this year, people, especially once the PEA comes out, yeah, hopefully we will start to see that value being generated. And I think, as I said at the moment, I'd see us at a, at a pretty undervalued point in that uh, in that whole process. So uh, a good opportunity for potential shareholders. Yeah, agreed. There is a lot of a good potential here. The price is about right. And again, the way you guys have structured this, as far as schedule goes, if you're going to be working a lot of long nights here. But if you guys are able to stick with the schedule, you know, notwithstanding a substantial liquidity event in the broad market, um, I think this uh, you know has a lot of room to re-rate. You know, again, I think there's a there's a discount here with a management team that, uh, in my view, tier one management, uh, you and Rick running this show, and and I know you and Rick are still pretty lean and hungry at this point uh, to see this go forward. So, Hugh, best way for the investors and other potential folks who have questions to reach out to the company. Um, you'll see at the end of I don't know if it's on the on the, the presentation on the website has um, has my email and uh, Adam Spencer the executive VP Corp Dev so you can contact either of us directly. Well, Hugh, this has been fun. Really appreciate uh, the intro to montage here, and uh, we hope you'll come back again soon. No, appreciate that, Andrew. Enjoyed it.